I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is one thing for us to make a promise. It's another thing to keep it. All of us have been disappointed with broken promises, broken commitments. Sometimes we ourselves have failed to, because of weaknesses or limitations, failed to follow through on some of the promises that we have made. And as I think about that, last week we looked at the fact that we are to pray, Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes to the hope, to the, the riches, to the power that you've blessed us with. And, and the fact of the matter is, we have all been blessed by God. In Ephesians or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Peter speaks of the fact that he has given to us some precious and magnificent promises. And yet as we think about that, We're also mindful of the fact that all of us struggle with trials. All of us face tragedies at times, battles in our life. And it's easy to doubt and wonder, is it really true? The promises that God has has given, are are they really true? How do do they relate to our day-by-day experience? Is there hope in, in a hopeless situation? As I was working on this message a while back, it was the day that uh, Billy Graham passed into eternity. And as I thought about that, I thought of the words of Dwight L. Moody, the great American evangelist, where he said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe one word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that's all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like his glorious body. Our hope is rooted not in today, it's rooted in eternity. It's rooted in what God has prepared for us in glory. Our hope is found in, as I've titled this, the incomparable Christ. The one who has made these promises, the one who will fulfill them. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, he's recounting the story of Abraham, how God called Abraham to to leave his homeland and gave him some tremendous promises there. And uh, it says in verse 13, because he could swear by no other, he swore by himself. He is the final authority there. In chapter 11 of Hebrews in verse 13, it speaks of the fact, you know, a lot of the patriarchs died in faith, not receiving the promises. But he goes on in verse 16 to say, God's not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because he had something better, something eternal prepared for them. And so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we look at how he describes Jesus Christ in this passage. He, first of all, describes him as the resurrected Christ. He is the resurrected Lord today in verse 20. Uh, Lois called me this week and asked, would it be all right to sing Christ arose? Uh, Traditionally, it's an Easter song. And uh, I said, I don't care if we celebrate Easter every day of the year. Christ arose, and we should be 
mindful of that fact. As a matter of fact, that's an essential part of the, the gospel message there. I, I realize that all of us face the reality of death. It began back in Genesis chapter 3 when uh, God said, you know, Adam, you came from dust. You're going to return to dust there. We fight against that idea. Uh, and yet in fighting against that idea, I think we've got to realize we're fighting a losing battle. It's coming to all of us sooner or later there. In Psalm 90, verse 10, he speaks of the fact that uh, our days are three score and ten. You ever figure out how many that is? Seventy. Yeah, or if by reason of strength, it's four score. You know what that means? It means some of us are living on borrowed time. <laughs> we, we, we don't like to think about that, but, but we are. And uh, as time goes on, we realize that more and more. The day is coming when we're going to be leaving this earth. But praise the Lord, if we know the resurrected Christ, we know where we're going. We're we're leaving for something far better today. We are fighting a losing battle physically here. It was a losing battle until Christ arose. Because he arose, we have hope today. 1 Corinthians 15 Three and four, he gives the gospel in a nutshell there. He speaks of the fact that Christ died on the cross for us, that he was buried, and that he what? He rose again on the third day so that we can face the fact of resurrected life. He destroyed the one who had the power of death for us. Did I lose it? No, okay, I thought, thought I lost the mic there. In John, or Psalm 16, verse 10, in thinking of the resurrection of Christ there, he says this, For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Yes, he went through the process of death. Yes, he was hung on that cross. Yes, he cried out, it's finished, and he gave up his life. But three days later, he marched out of that grave. Three days later, he was alive again. And the promise he holds out to us in that is John 14, verse 19. He said, because I live, you too shall live. You shall live also there. And in, in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, it speaks of the fact that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men to be pitied there. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in the very next verse and says, but now Christ is risen. From the dead. So praise the Lord, we have a resurrected Christ today. <coughs> we also have a seat at Christ in verses 20 and 21 here. Where is he seated? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, you ever come to the book of Exodus and you get past the story there, the story part, and then you get all of the details for the tabernacle. And then you have to go from that into Leviticus and all of the sacrifices. You ever get bogged down in that and just say, I'm going to skip this? uh, It's there for a purpose. But if you've taken the time to read through all of that, you'll realize in the Old Testament tabernacle, there were no chairs. Now, aren't you glad you don't have to go to a place like that? I mean, you have comfortable chairs here. Uh, But they they didn't have a chair in the tabernacle. (coughs) Why not? Well, the work of redemption was not finished. There was always one more sacrifice to make. There, there was always one more thing that had to be done there. But it was on the cross that Jesus cried out, it is finished. 
the work of our redemption was completed on the cross of Calvary. And uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we have the story of the creation of the world. We read that God in six days created this world. And then on the seventh day, he rested after declaring that it was good. It doesn't say that he sat back and let nature take its course and over millions of years it suddenly came together. No, he created it in six days. And he rested from that. That, That's why the children of Israel celebrated the seventh day as a day of rest. Why don't we celebrate the seventh day as a day of rest today? Why do we worship on Sunday? Well, we're not celebrating the ending of his work of creation. We are celebrating the completion of his work of redemption. It was finished for us. And as he rose from the dead, he rose for our justification in that moment. That whole process was complete, and we have the hope today of eternal life. So that's why we celebrate today on the Lord's Day on Sunday, because our, the work of our redemption was complete. And he's seated today in heaven because of that fact. Uh, I'm not re- in Romans eight thirty two. he speaks of the fact that if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not freely with him give us all things? We are blessed today because he's alive. We are blessed today because he is at the throne of God in heaven and he secures those blessings for us. Now, I realize as I say that, that all of us face the reality of pain and suffering and struggles and and trials along the way. In Psalm 110, verse 1, he speaks there of the fact that uh, the father said to the son there, Take your seat at my right hand until I destroy your enemies there. And the final enemy that we face in this lifetime is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 54 there. He says, uh, this perishable must put on imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. And then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And the day is coming when that will be reality for you and I. Death is the final enemy that we have to face in in this life. And guess what? Christ has already defeated that enemy for us. That's why he can say in in the book of Corinthians, to be absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. We, We have that hope today. That's part of our birthright as a child of God. Uh, You know, when you think about that, so often we forget that God or that Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of God. Too often we make excuses for God or for ourselves. Too often, if we're not careful, we limit God. Do you ever come up with that excuse? Well, that's just the way I am. You just have to accept me as I am. No, you're a new creature in Christ. God's in the business of transforming you and making you into the image of Jesus Christ. Don't settle for second best. Live for the glory of Jesus Christ. He is seated on the throne to make that possible in your life. And then the third thing we see here is he is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Christ today. Uh, he, He mentions here the surpassing greatness of God. Is it true? He happens to be Lord of all. He happens to have all rule in heaven and in earth. As he went back to be with his father in heaven in Matthew 28, he said, all power is given unto me, where? In all the earth 
Not, not just part of it, but it, it's been given to him. He's on the throne today. I, I think of the story of Job when I think of that. You remember all of the trials that Job went through? You ever wonder how many questions did Job ask God? Why is this happening? Why, why, what, what are you allowing this in my life? The, the fact that Job didn't fully understand then was that God said to Satan, you can go this far and no farther. Who was the one in control there? It wasn't Satan. It was God. God was the one that had set the terms and the conditions there. And I would suggest that when a trial comes into your life, it's not taking God by surprise. God has already set the limits. He already knows what he wants to do through that in your life. And he is able to say, this, go this far and no farther. First Corinthians ten thirteen says, there's no temptation taken us, but what's common to man. We're not the only ones that go through those trials. Others have as well. And yet he said, God is able to make a way of escape in the midst of that trial. We may not fully understand the trial that's touching our life today, but we can understand the fact that his grace is sufficient. That's the promise he holds out to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 there, where Paul said, prayed three times, Lord, let this thorn in the flesh be taken out of my life and three times God said no not going to take it out of your life I've sent it for a reason but he said I want you to know Paul that my grace is sufficient and my power he said will be made perfect how in your weakness we don't like to think of weakness do we? we we don't like to think there are times when we're weak but God said in that midst of that weakness my power will be made strong How is that possible? Well, it's possible because, first of all, he is, as Paul reveals here, he is the head of all things here. Head of the universe in Colossians chapter 1. Acts 15 describes, Acts 17 describes him as, in verse 28, as the head of every family in the earth. And again, in chapter 1 of Colossians, he speaks of the fact that he is the head of what? The church. He is over all. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 expands that, that body concept here. He's the head. We are part of the body there. And yet, have you ever noticed how the head directs the body? It, it, it's the important area there. If, if, uh, if our brain isn't working, we're not working either. <laughs> we, we can be comatose and, and, and not accomplish much, but uh, it, it's the head that's the, the important area there. And if we're not careful... As we walk through this life, we forget who is the head. We forget that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And we like to put ourselves in his position and usurp his authority there. Uh, you ever try to impose your will on God? You ever give God a deadline in prayer? Every time, Lord, you've got to do it this way? Uh, we're playing God in that moment. And uh, I can't help but wonder sometimes if God doesn't chuckle when we do that. Uh, Because he's going to do it his way, whether we like it or not. He he is the head. We are part of the the body there. Don't try to usurp his authority. I think a very valid prayer today is, not my will, but thine be done. I know some people say, well, that's a cop-out. We have the right to come and demand whatever we want from God. I hate to break it to you, but no, you don't. 
God has made some tremendous promises, and we can claim those promises. But if God says, I'm going to put you through a trial, guess what? You're going to go through that trial. Uh, He's God. You are not today. He is the head, and then he finishes it off in verse 23 by saying he is the fullness here. Difficult expression. Commentators will differ on this. I believe what he's saying here is simply that he, Jesus Christ, fills all in all. He is the one who fills us. Ephesians 5.18 speaks of the fact that we're to be filled with the Spirit of God. In Colossians 2, it speaks of the fact that in him is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and he comes and dwells in us. And so what he's saying in that is if we're filled with the Spirit, then he is the one that sets the course for our life. He is the one that determines what is going to happen, what isn't going to happen in our life. I think of the Christian life. We have some tremendous freedom, don't we, to choose, to to act, to do what we want. But, you know, it's a little bit like being on an ocean liner. Now, I know some of you love to travel on those ocean liners. I've never had that privilege. I've been on the Alaskan ferry from um, Prince Rupert up to Juneau, but uh, never gone across the ocean on a an ocean liner. But I'm told it's, a, it's an interesting experience. I, I, I still don't know whether I'd enjoy it or not. Uh, but there's so much you can do on, on those ocean liners. There, there's swimming pools, there's tennis courts, there's uh, restaurants, there's entertainment, all, all kinds of activities. And, and you have the freedom to choose what you want to do while you're on that, that cruise. There is one thing, though, that you're not free to do on that ship. That is, you are not free to set the course. The captain is. He's the head. He's the one that determines where the boat is going to go there, the ship is going to go. So you can tell I'm not a Navy man. Uh, interchange boat and ship there. Uh, but uh, uh, he's the one that sets the course for our life. He gives us tremendous freedom to make choices as we walk through this life. But it's the captain that sets the course for us. His power is available to us today. Can he keep his word? Yes, he can. He is the incomparable Christ today. His help is available to us as we walk through this life. Hebrews eleven thirteen speaks of the fact that, yes, the patriarchs didn't see all of the promises fulfilled, but God was going to do it. God would keep his word to them. First John 4, 4 speaks of the fact that greater is he that is in us than he. That is in the world. We face a powerful enemy and a powerful foe. But guess what? His power is available to us. He's on our side today. So have you been discouraged, been defeated, uh, been frustrated? Maybe you need to get your eyes fixed on the incomparable Christ. I I, I love it when God messes with a message. I, I, I do my best to prepare it all in advance and have it all ready. And it's all typed up usually about three months in advance. And then along comes the Lord at the last minute, and uh, he changes something in it for me. And that happened this week. I, I, I received an email, and this is, what, two weeks in a row? Didn't I have a, what was it, last week? Yeah, it was last week. Uh, I, I hope the Lord isn't saying you've got to get more involved in computers. <laughs> that, that's scary. <laughs> but but this came on the computer. It, uh, Gwenny graciously sent this to me. It's, it's an article written. In Streams in the Desert by Mrs. Charles Cohen. And if you used the Streams in the Desert as a devotional over the years, it has some tremendous uh, ins- insights in it. 
But uh, this is what she writes. She said, much that perplexes us in our Christian life experience is but the answer to our prayers. Now, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to pick out highlights here, and I want you to think about each of them for a minute. We pray for patience, and our Father sends those who tax us to the uttermost for tribulation worketh patience. Have you experienced that? Yeah. Is God building some patience into your life through interpersonal relationships and problems that come along with those? We pray for submission, and God sends suffering. For we learn obedience by the things we suffer. We pray for unselfishness, and God gives us the opportunity to sacrifice ourselves by thinking on the things of others and by laying down our lives for the brethren. We pray, Lord, increase our faith, and money takes its wings, or the children are alarmingly ill, or a helper comes who is careless or extravagant or untidy or slow, and some hitherto unknown trial calls for us for an increase of faith. We pray for gentleness, and then comes a perfect storm of temptation to harshness and irritability. We pray for quietness, and every nerve is strung to the utmost tension, so that looking to him we may learn that when he gives quietness, no one can make trouble. We pray for love, and God sends peculiar suffering and puts us, in a, puts us with apparently unlovely people. Ever experienced that? Ever find there are certain people out there that are just like porcupines? They're hard to love. And God will bring them our way if we're praying for love. He lets them say things which rasp the nerves and lacerate the heart. For love suffereth long and is kind. Love is not rude. Love is not easily provoked. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The way to peace and victory is to accept every circumstance, every trial straight from the hand of a loving father and to live up in the heavenly places above the clouds in the very presence of the throne and to look down from glory upon our environment as lovingly and divinely appointed. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that the trials that touch your life today are there because God allowed them? Do you believe that that person that may rub you the wrong way is there because God wants to do something in your life and he sent them there for a reason? Or are we frustrated and fighting against what God wants to do today? In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Will we face the gates of hell? Certainly we will. Will we face opposition? It comes to every one of us. Will we face trials? Yes, they will. But remember the words of Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church. That's a promise. And so as we look at some of the trials that have crowded into our lives in recent days, can we say, Lord, I believe you're building your church. I believe I have a part in that, and I'm going to give you thanks and praise as the incomparable Christ. I'm going to rejoice in who you are because in Colossians 1.27, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. His hope is real today. He will keep his word. He will keep his promise. He's building character in us. He's building character through us, 
He will use us if we are willing to say, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see how you're working in my life. Help me to see what you want to do, what you are saying in the trials that I'm facing today. Lord, if you have a blessing in them, I want that blessing. Take me through them to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let him be Lord of your life today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to stop and thank you for who Jesus Christ is. Thank you, Lord, Father, that he is resurrected, that he's seated on the throne in heaven. And thank you, Lord, that he is still the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we give you praise and thanks for that. And we want to confess, Father, that there are times when we lose sight of that. We get frustrated. We get upset. We get discouraged. We may even try to take it out on a brother or sister in Christ without realizing that we shouldn't be doing that. Forgive us of those times, Father. Keep our eyes fixed on the fact that you have promised to build your church. And you've invited us to be part of that. And in a small way, we can be a part of building the church of Jesus Christ. So give us the faith to believe that and to persevere to the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. And with it, as we think of the incomparable Christ, we're going to sing, How Great Thou Art. Gary? <laughs>